What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Mm. I reckon we have a bit of a showdown, me and you. Really? Yeah. Okay. Really find out who's a better trainer. Ooh, now you've fucking thrown the cat amongst the pigeons, haven't you? Yeah. I reckon we get puppies, mm. brothers or something like that, okay. and have a bit of a competition, see who can raise it the best. Okay. So now that you've thrown the gauntlet out there, where are you thinking that we're going to get these magnificent specimens from? I want to get duchies right. or shepherds. Yep. So if we're going to get them, the only place in the world that anybody should be looking to get mm. a German Shepherd or a Dutch Shepherd from is House Hamburg Shepherds in Germany. Oh, good call. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like this. All right. So now that we've got the dogs, yeah. what's the next part of the evolution? Well, the good news is mm-hmm. they they can send those Shepherds anywhere in the world. Yep. So what about we get one sent here to Australia? Right. You'll train that one. Okay. And I'll get one sent to myself in North America. Mm-hmm. But we're going to need training equipment to train those dogs. Right. So I guess that I have to go and talk to the bullfed. Yeah. So your gear, all your dog training needs, Mm -hmm. because we'll start fresh. We'll get all new everything. Everything. All your dog training needs will be met by Ironswick Dog Quip. Oh, the bullfed himself. Yeah. Okay. So I can get myself some mills, some great leads, some collars. All that Training stuff. devices, treats, balls, whatever I need. Yeah, you'll be able yep. to get that from Ironswick because yep. you're going to be here in Australia. Well, that means that you have to go up north, further north, yep. in, in North America yep. and go and see old mate, Mach Le Point. Yep. And get everything from Canine everything. Dynamics. Oh, Canine Dynamics. Yep. Yep. I'll get the leashes I need, the tugs I need, everything. I think I can even get bite suits. Everything. Yeah. I can get that from Canine Dynamics. Yep. From in North America. Mm-hmm. There is one- Part of this that is somewhat unfair. Well, you get to hang out with Melanie Benway. Yeah. So I'm actually going to get my dog. Tra- I'm not going to do any of the training. Yep. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to get a play and train mm-hmm. done where Mel's actually just going to come to my house because I'm going to take that dog to Richmond, Virginia. Yep. Ashland, Virginia Ashland. as well. Ashland, Ashland Virginia. Virginia. Yep. So everything both areas. Yeah. I can be either one of those mm. and I'm just going to go do something else nine to five and she'll come into my home Train that dog. Well, you're sipping cafe just, lattes. Just, just gallivanting yeah. all over gallivanting. The <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Welcome back to Australia, Mr. Jet Setter. Thank you, sir. Thank so you for having me. Give us a brief on, on how it all went. It was wonderful. It was a quick turnaround. I don't know that I'll do that again. I have done a shorter turnaround in the past, mm. um, but I was a younger man. So yeah, it was tough. It's 30 hours and 31 minutes to get there. Uh, most terrifying takeoff I've ever had because it was pouring in Sydney and the pilot, they were doing runway works and the pilot was obviously having a bad day like his bedside manner wasn't great and he gets on the speaker and he says we're not even sure we're going to be able to take off 
So we'll just have to wait. And then two hours sitting on the tarmac, he says, we've had to unload all the cargo and we should be all right to get up before the end of the runway now. And off we go. And I'm like, should be all right. <laughs> like, that's not what I want to hear. So then I miss my connections and blah, blah, blah. Oh, geez. Yeah, it was this whole ordeal. But I had an amazing time there. It was super fast turnaround. Uh, I didn't get to socialize with the people as much as I would like to because I was just flat out. I had in my head the way I was going to film the trial was going to be multiple cameras all over the place and I was going to get multiple angles of all these things. And I had the cameras. I had the capacity to do that. But what I didn't have was the capacity to run around pushing start and stop. Oh, yeah. You need a production crew when you're doing things like that. Like People don't realize how much work that actually yeah, is. Yeah. And also was really cognizant of having too many people on the field because it's dangerous, right? Mm. So like, as it was, even just having me out there at one point, one of the dogs gave me a little look. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a brown pants moment? <laughs> I had a full, like the Rolodex in my brain was going a thousand miles a second trying to figure out like, what am I going to do here if this dog comes at me? And it was Kai, right? Like a real police dog, SWAT team dog, mm. many live bites. So he's like- it's no big deal that I'm not the decoy to him, right? Yeah. And so as he's coming at me, it's running through my brain. I'm thinking, there's nothing I can do because this is a level two dog that knows how to defeat a fen. So mm -hmm. even if I try and use this camera to fend him, that's just going to piss him off, yeah. right? That's just going to get me bit in the leg instead of the arm. <laughs> um, and he bites like a crocodile. Mm. But fortunately, like, you know, Mike McMahon's dog, so... He won. He won the level two. Total control over the dog. As soon as it even veered towards me, he just redirected it onto the right one. But still, my asshole kind of went five cent, 50 cent. <laughs> I said that to someone in the States. I had no idea what I was talking about. That's an it's Australian thing. a very thing. Australian thing yeah. to say. If you don't understand our, our coin sizes. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I was flat out running around filming that I was exhausted each day and I, I hardly got to really socialize with people beyond a little bit, right? And it was great to see a bunch of people that, you know, I hadn't seen in years. But for the most part, I really only got to spend time with the officials on the field, which is, you know, a lot of those are the people I want to spend time with anyway, but mm. because I was just out there the whole time. So it was flat out. I ended up with over two terabytes worth of footage. I'm slowly working my way through all of that. I've already put out the vlog. I think people, a lot of people have already watched that and that had some cool sort of footage. And that's kind of a teaser. Next thing I'm going to do is like a highlight reel of the whole trial, just mm -hmm. the trial footage. I think I'll also put out just the winners of each level and show that yep. maybe with some really limited commentary to explain to people who don't understand PSA, like mm -hmm. what they're watching and then the last piece will be the doco about PSA that'll go into Patreon. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about it, but that's probably a month away from being ready. Just oh, depends yeah, on how much time I have. It's yeah. a lot of work. A yeah. lot of work. I mean, the issue is, you know, like you do an interview with someone and you speak for an hour and you're only going to use two or three minutes of that. But I have to rewatch that interview that whole hour to mm. then find the two or three minutes of what I'm going to use and then put all that together. So the time, it just blows out on that. Normally with the YouTube video stuff that I make, the rule of thumb, it's pretty accurate, is it takes about an hour per minute. But with the more narrative stuff, it's up to sort of four hours a minute, right? Like, so it's a big job, but I'm, mm. I'm leaning into it. I'm excited about it. Thank you very much, Patreon, for supporting that yeah. vision because uh, everybody who subscribes to Patreon and donates to that little project allowed us to get the equipment so you could go over there and film it. Yeah. And so- 
amazing gear. Like, you know, there's a few photographers and stuff there. I think I'm really lucky only getting into this really recently is I now have the latest gear. Mm. And so there were other people trying to get photos and trying to, you know, manually focus on things. And I was like, oh no, my R5 has a animal tracking capability. So I'll like I can, into that. I can lock it onto the dog <laughs> and it'll ignore everything else that's around here. So like really amazing. And can't thank everyone enough for contributing to allow us to buy that gear to allow it all to happen. Well, it's great because- on one hand, you really get to do a, like a brilliant expose of animal behavior in general, especially in dog training, which is what we're all here for. Mm-hmm. So people get to share in that instead of just hear the story, like they can yeah. see it for themselves and know what it's like to be out on the field, especially high stakes like nationals and so forth, yeah. where it's all the big ticket dogs hitting the field at that day at totally. all levels. But everybody who traveled around from different states in United States, absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And I think what I'm really excited about doing, and and I want to do it with all dog sports, is explain it to the point where someone who doesn't know what it is, has never read the rule book or doesn't really understand the game, now can watch what this and, you know, see the event through new eyes and Mm. kind of understanding it. And I think that's especially, PSA represents interesting challenge because, you know, it was streamed live and the guy that does that, that Dog Sports Live, he does a great job. He mm. has a really nice setup. Like he's he's been evolving, you know, since his first one, you know, just an iPhone following around to now he's got a couple of multiple cameras. He's doing that through a stream deck. Like he's, you know, he's got a good setup. Mm. But I think what's missing, you know, PSA is a really exciting sport to watch. It's fun. There's carnage on the field. There's powerful dogs. You know, it's unpredictable at times. And I think it has little human elements that people enjoy, like the risk of someone getting hurt and stuff like that. You know, like I think people enjoy the idea of that. Mm. Like, you know, the most talked about part of the live is when in the call off, one of the dogs came after the judge and the judge had to fend the dog. Wow. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it's exciting. That's Mm. entertaining. But I think what ends up sort of missing a little bit, so so PSA is a, a very watchable dog sport. I think compared to some others, it's very watchable because there's super exciting things. And as the scenarios unfold, rather than just being like, do this exercise, do this exercise, do this exercise, right? Like the deeper you go into the sport, the more complex the scenarios are versus the exercises within those scenarios. Mm. But I think what is missing then is you know, some understanding of what's happening. Right. So like uh, now, as I put all that together, I'm fighting the battle of between commentating it and sort of narrating and explaining what is happening and what's unique to this trial versus what is just a standard of PSA. Mm. So that's what I've got to try and figure out now, because like the goal with all of this is first to entertain, you know, our listeners and viewers and stuff like that, people who are into it anyway. But then I really want to you know, exposed to new people, Mm. this is dog sport. This is what we do with our dogs. This is not some barbaric, brutal thing. This is people who love their dogs. This is some of the best trainers in the world. This is the cutting edge of, you know, dog training. And this is the people who are pushing training and asking things of a dog that 10 years ago was considered impossible Mm. and is now the standard, right? And some of the best decoys you'll ever see. Totally. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. And I got great interviews with some of the decoys and, you know, like, so it was really good, but what I really, you know, it's hard to determine the audience, like, and that's why I'm just going to do multiple. I mean, I'm going to do the same thing multiple times and say, hey, dog sport people, here's a sick highlight reel to music of big hits, Mm. right? Because you, that's what you want to see. You know what's happening. You can determine it. And then I want to make something that's more shareable to the public where we say like, hey, this is what's going on here. And this person that you're watching here 
trained your dog trainer that's teaching your dog not to jump on guests as they come in. And I kind of, I want to come up with some sort of way of explaining that where we say to people like, you know, here's Jerry Bradshaw, right? Like he invented this game. Him mm. and his friends decided they wanted their own surprise scenario sport. And over the last 20 years, this is how it comes to be. And he trains police dogs and has this big training center, blah, blah, blah. But what I want is to sort of show the average Jono the link between their fluffball dog that they know a couple of things about markers and how to not like, you know, how to, how to make that dog a nice family member. Mm. I want to show them that these people at this competition are very important to them being able to do that. Right. Like there's been a trickle down and that you might, that might not be something you're interested in. You might find the idea of dog sports you know, confronting and overwhelming. You might not like the idea of dogs doing work at all. You might think that dogs shouldn't be trained to bite people, all these kinds of things that like these feelings that a lot of people just have. Mm. I want to find a way to educate those people and say, actually the skill set that your pet dog trainer has coming into your home was developed by these people on this field. You mean it's exactly like the Devil Wears Prada exactly. conversation that someone did a hilarious clip on our yeah. uh, discussion group, which <laughs> exactly. we were talking about in the Day Croy interview. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I get it. You know, it, it, you're right. It, a lot of things that people take for granted in their own living rooms that are happening there is because education processes and things that were developed out on fields and things that were developed in training round tables mm-hmm. and that migrates into the family home with the family dog. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the ways I think that we can safeguard ourselves against people wanting to ban our sports, mm. right? Or, or not liking what we're doing and thinking, I don't understand that. Therefore, it's bad and I want it gone. Mm. What I want is to be like, hey, here's enough information about that for you to be comfortable with it. I'm not, I don't expect you to do it. I don't want you to, but I want you to be okay with me doing it, me mm. and my compadres doing it. Speaking of, I'm not going to make a whole thing of this, but there is some disappointment, not only from my end, but multitudes of people around Australia at some of the comments that are coming out about from the Animal Justice Party in relation to banning bite sports and biting dogs and so forth. Like, yeah. what an outrageous political system we live in where people are, are just coming in and literally just lighting up the field on something that they haven't consulted over professionally or even even at a amateur level, you know, yeah. like they're just missing the point. In Australia, especially people outside Australia don't understand the way our political system works. And because we're a fairly moderate country, I was explaining this to people in the States and I was just there, like even our right wing party is left by American standards, mm. right? On a lot of issues. People are fairly moderate in Australia. Both our political parties, are they're not that different. And so unfortunately, we get some really 50-50 splits, which means that the independents with really bizarre agendas can end up wielding a lot of power. And I Mm. think that's what's happening with that animal justice party. Like they only need one person in parliament and they can control the entire parliament because the in power party will require their vote to get through other normal legislation. That's right. right. And so then they've, they wield a big sword because they're like, Hey, I will help you out with tax reform and yeah, the normal stuff Mm. that governments need to do these lunatics then can say, hey, like, yeah, I'll allow all of this to go through. I'll vote, you know, I'll vote that through. But also you have to, what are they working on now? Like no dogs to train to bite people or anything like that. No dogs in police oh, and stuff like that. As I've always stipulated, and 
I can speak for so many people on this. We've always stipulated like fair welfare concerns are, are raised and discussed. You know, yeah. like when people are genuinely treating any animal, let's say any animal, poorly, we stand in support of any of the welfare organisations who step in and say, you need to up your game here, son, because this is bad news for everybody and especially the animals. Nobody stands in their path. But when they just come out with some of these outrageous statements and then you get the leader of the party cozying up to already a power-mad politician, you know there's dirty deeds that they're all, yeah. all planning within parliament. That sort of stuff just makes my bones ache. Yeah. And it just shows how untrustworthy they really are. Totally. I totally respect any party that consults with all of the stakeholders. Mm-hmm. So they meet with the stakeholders, everybody gets together and they listen to it on a fair and balanced system and say, all right, well, there's good arguments here. We've come at it from our agenda and then we've spoken to other stakeholders. They provide us with good evidence and now we can all see that there is uh, more information that we hadn't considered before and we really need to be more considerate of that. Like you really truly respect those type of people, Mm. but they're not it. Mm. You know, like it's just so far leaning. Anyway, like I said, I don't want want to take up the whole- I think- yeah, to close that up, I think it behoves us to provide information to the public. Like, you know, what the issue with all of those animal justice parties and whatever is that at the surface, you would be mad not to support them, right? Like at the surface level, you're the average person on the street. and That's these, why people do, because they don't know any better right. and they don't want to be that ruthless person that they think you're being painted out to be. Yeah, and so I think for people like us, me and you, but, you know, everybody in the the dog community and especially people who are content producers need to be producing content that can show the reality of the situation. Mm. And so, you know, like when I did the behind the scenes and doco on IGP stuff, you see like Michelle's dog was a big part of it because that dog's nutrition, that dog's health is at the forefront of her mind. And when a lot of people, you know, they're like, Oh, I want, I don't want that to happen because I think that's bad for dogs. What I want to show them is like, actually these people, their dog's health and well-being is leap years ahead of yours, the average pet owner, mm. right? Like your dog goes to the vet once a year for its vaccinations and that's it. These people, their dogs are seeing chiropractors. Their dog's nutrition is on point. They're measuring, weighing everything, getting it all there. Like the dogs live the lo- the pampered life of an athlete. They're Olympians. Yeah. That's what they're being raised like. They're Olympians. Their yeah. fitness regime is incredible. Yeah. As you said, their nutrition demands are impeccable, you know, like the money that they invest and spend on these dogs, the walking the dogs get, the attention, the access to the things that the dogs love most in the world are available to those dogs. Whereas the people who are often complaining are their dogs are sitting on the couch getting fat at home. That's right. And probably shortening their their lives by about four years. That's right. And so that's what I want to, instead of being reactionary and when these, you know, problematic parliament people essentially say like, you you guys shouldn't be doing this. And then we're like, oh, but- you know, it's too late at that point. Mm. Well, that's why I want to create information, put information out there, create content that stimulates people to think this is good. I don't want to do it, but I'm totally okay with you doing it. In yep. fact, I want you to do it. And I think that it's up to us to be doing that. And and the problem with all the bite sports is we hide it because we're worried about the perception of it, right? And I think that we need to take control of that perception and instead of you know hiding it because we're worried what people will say is put it out there with the right message. And and it, it's not like we're manipulative because we are manipulating what they see, but it's honesty. We're mm. still delivering honest intent. Like, hey, this is what we do. This is why we do it. These are our dogs that love it. And as I say, I, th- I think that, 
the average person would be totally fine with that when they understand it. And it's so easy to convince people to follow their heart when you say that you're doing it the right for the dogs. It's, it's the right thing for the animals. Mm. Well, I want to get on on that train. I want to be saying this is the right thing for the animals. We need this. This is what they do. This is what they live for. And we got to show them through the eyes of the animal because when people look at the PSA video, right? You see like the highlight clip that I put out of just big hits and the dogs doing all these, you know, highly fighting decoys and stuff like that. When people worry about that, it's because they imagine Fluffy, their Maltese Terrier doing it. Mm. And it's like, Fluffy's never going to do that. We're never going to ask that of Fluffy. But this Dutch Shepherd that weighs 45 kilos is not Fluffy. Like he was built for this. He wasn't built to sit on the couch and do nothing. Although he loves that too. He's social. He's still someone's loved pet, but he enjoys fighting. Like that is what makes him happy. He is built to do this. You know, many years ago in Victoria, when a lot of these legislations really came into limelight and were rewritten from the Domestic Feral and Nuisance Animal Act and then became more about animal acts in relation to bite sports and so forth, the then Schutzen community, because it was Schutzen back then, what they really wanted to do was highlight their achievements on their ANKC paperwork. Mm. So primarily say, if we title in Australia, we deserve to have our pedigrees mm-hmm. highlight the fact that we've got a Schutzen 3, Schutzen 2, Schutzen 1, mm-hmm. whatever it was. I don't think the communication back then was done so well. Mm-hmm. And I feel that the general public started to believe, well, in order for me to have paperwork, I need to do these bite sports that these other people are doing. And how am I going to make my Bichon free run out onto a field and do this? And that's what the perception of some of these people were. Yeah. So primarily they all banded together and said, we don't want this. And yeah. we want some attention about this because this is not what we envisage our dogs doing. And even though that was so left of the original processing behind it, which primarily was if we do the sport, we just want to receive the accreditation for it. The general perception was terribly mismanaged. Mm. And therefore there was a, a lot of politicians saw this as their golden goose where yep. they could think, okay, well, I can I can rewrite history here. Yep. And they did. They got a lot of TV time, a lot of media time over it. And unfortunately, so did the Schutzen community and the bite groups and so forth. So there was a lot of people who really – we're doing their own thing. We're, we're existing in the back blocks and all of a sudden became six o'clock news. Mm. And I see somebody's doing a petition at the moment for mm. something similar. Do you know who that is? Yeah, it's Senna. Senna. Yeah. Yep. So I can see that that same sort of petition is existing at the moment. And I support it. I absolutely support it. I'm concerned about it though. Same. Like my concern is once you start rubbing up these politicians about these type of things, they then say, okay, well, if you want something, we have to take something. Yeah. That's the mentality that's really crazy about the political movement is there just doesn't seem to be anything for free. It's like, if I give you something, I have to take something away. Yeah. I'm very concerned about all that. I agree with you. I I support the idea of it, Mm. but I'm very concerned that it's actually going to have a detrimental effect. It's not the people that we're concerned about because they're doing it for the right reasons. They they want acknowledgement for their hard work and they want to be able to receive what European nations have been receiving for years. They're allowed to, and they're encouraged to, and they're supported and they're given the paperwork for doing it overseas and all it reflects reflects the hard work that the community does, which is how it should be in Australia as well. However, we don't have the political system or the people to support it. And the problem is, is we have such minority groups who never agree to come together over these things. They will on paper, but they won't stand together in the field. Like Melbourne just had nearly half a million people marching down against dictator Dan for something that they feel passionate about. Mm. Dog groups, you'll get a hundred people turn up on the steps of parliament 
they'll look out the window and just go, ha, 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 yeah, look exactly. at them. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. That's the problem. Because and how do I know that? Because I've been to those marches. Yeah. It's the usual suspects. We had a meeting the other day, like a, a meeting about some of the political stuff that's going on here. Same people who always turn up to fight for people's rights are always the same people. It's yeah. always the same group of people because everybody goes, oh, Glenn and those guys will do it. I don't have to turn up. That's a big problem for us. Totally. Mm. I think that's a very complex issue. I don't know like if it's a, a topic for today, but I think that with Bite Sports, I want to show it, but I think the issue with demanding the recognition of the titles, which they're totally entitled to and absolutely mm. should get. I agree. Is that the FCI people within this country, it's going it's to be easier for them to just try and ban the sport completely so they don't have to deal with that problem than it will be to change their ways. Yep. And they're a bigger, more powerful organization and they, like, I don't see them being beaten. And that's why one of the reasons I love PSA is PSA have no masters. They're mm. like, we don't need anyone's permission to do this. We don't need these titles recognized on anyone's pedigree. You can go on it if you want, but we don't need permission. Mm. And I think that is the future because I think some of these outdated organizations, they're not keeping up and they're not interested in keeping up. And so- they only have the power you give them. Mm. That's that's the issue with, I think, a lot of the organizations in the dog community is that they only have the power people give them. And I don't give them any power. I don't acknowledge any. I don't acknowledge anything they do. They have no sway over me. I, my dogs are mongrel. I don't breed. I don't need paperwork for any of my stuff. And that's all they can give me. All they can hold over the real dog community, because that's who we're talking about, the people mm. who actually train dogs to do stuff, right? All that those organizations can hold over you is your paperwork. And if you just play one of the games that doesn't require that paperwork, then they're powerless and mm. they'll and they'll go away. They'll cease to exist. They'll fade into irrelevance. Oh, it weighs the heart down sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it, I want to be clear because I, so like with what's going on with that petition, like I support it. I, I absolutely they're yeah, in the right. Likewise. They I absolutely are in the right. Mm. I just am very concerned about how it's what effect it's actually going to have. I think it's the takeaway effect. That's what I'm worried about. That's what I'm always concerned about. Not that I'm very politically inclined because I try to remove myself from as much politics as I can. I don't post about it. I try not to talk about it. We've talked about it here a few times and then thought, it's not the message we really want to deliver. And there are things that I'm passionate about, things that anger me, things that concern me. The problem is, what do you lose? That's the thing is what gets taken from you. It is a give and take. Mm. It's not a give. It's a give and take. Something gets taken away at the end of the day. It's very spiteful how it actually works. The other things concern me, and I feel sorry for the good men and women around the world, especially in Australia, because we are an island country, and it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right. Yeah. When you look at the fact that the states are allowed to do it, their organisations allow their pedigrees to reflect the work that they're doing. European a nation allows the competitors to have it on their, their paperwork as well. Australia, no. Nah. Yeah. No. Nah. And they're breaking the rules. What they're doing is not allowed. Right. By their own constitution, incorrect. Yep. And that's why we should get off the topic. But one of the things... I'm a rules guy, but once we break the rules, we may as well fucking break them all, Mm. right? Because this is one of the things I I used to – so when I was in the army, the range PAM, right, is – it was it's it's changed now, but it used to – I won't even tell you the designation of it, but it was – it's the rules of how you run a range practice, Mm -hmm. right? And people would try and bend the rules a little bit on it. And I was like – I was always like, no, we're either following it completely to the letter because that's what we're meant to do – but if we decide we're going outside of that, let's go fucking buck wild mm-hmm. because we're going to jail regardless. If yep. something goes wrong, 
where they're not going to say like, oh, you were just a little bit not following the rules. You either are or you are not. It's, it's binary. Like, it's like the saying, in for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah, that's mm. it. It's binary. Yep. You're, you're doing it correctly or you're not. You, yep. can't, you can't say like, I'll oh, follow these ones and not these ones. Yep. So it's like once we cross the line, fuck it, it's off. And yep. that's what's happened with this. They're saying like, we're very strict by the rules. They're the fucking strictest rule people getting around, except that one because we don't like it. And it's like, no, 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 no. You follow all the rules mm. or none of the rules. That's how it works, right? Anyway, that's my rant. Yep. And it's a worthy rant too. We got a funny message. We did. Not I'll a re- funny message, a peculiar a, a message. A concerning message, really. Yeah. A concerning message. Funny not ha-ha, funny like, oh, that's strange. Should I nominate the author of the message or should I? Did he PM it to us or is it a- He did PM it to us. Yeah, well, don't say his name in case he's not happy for that. A couple of days ago, we had a message from uh, one of the show listeners who says- Not sure if this could be a quick conversation on the show, but I've had this happen a few times this month of vets saying that neutering dogs will fix behavioural issues, mitigating them and getting rid of the need of training. I've had a few clients cancel future training appointments based off the vet's opinion on this, even dogs that need obedience training. One of the vets even had the nerve to say that neutering a male would be a great alternative for crate training. Would love to hear your thoughts on this. So before we even discuss that, what I want to get in front of is that I think that sometimes dog trainers and the dog training community have combative relationships with vets. Mm. And I think that's dangerous. I think that I have a great vet and I have not had any experience, negative experiences in that regard. And it's not like I sort out the best vet around. My vet's just the guy down the street, right? He turns out to be good, Mm. but it's not like, you know, so I think that the overwhelming majority of vets are great and yep. do, you know, it's just one of the hardest fucking jobs around. The study for it is in, incredible. The emotional toll on a lot oh, of those people terrible. is incredible. You know, there's no government subsidy. So like, you know, when you go into hospital and you're badly in, injured, the doctor in Australia anyway, never has to worry about your capacity to pay for his services. And he will do whatever it takes to save your life with zero regard to how much money it costs, because someone will cover that bill and it won't be you necessarily. But the vets don't have that luxury, right? They have a patient come in, badly injured, badly wounded, dying of cancer, whatever, and they have a layer of stress that I don't think many people acknowledge, and that is, can I, even though I have the skill set and the capacity to save this patient or treat this patient, am I going to get paid for it? And it's not just about like, do I get to buy another ivory back scratcher? It's, you know, medical procedures are very expensive. Mm. Do I, I'm going to use the drugs. I'm going to use the equipment. I'm going to use all these things. So even if I were to do it pro bono and not charge myself, there's a cost involved and that cost is very high. So I think that's one of the things that we always have to say before. I don't, I don't like vet bashing. You know what I mean? I think that vets do an incredible job. It's one of the hardest fucking jobs out there. And we need to, I think that every dog trainer who works, professionally, even like the hobbyists really should go out of their way to develop a working relationship with their local vet. You're absolutely right with what you said before. And we all do need to acknowledge the exceptional suicide rate within the veterinary community. And I mean, I've seen it on the other end where vets have, have copped a lot of emotional flack, like a lot of it to the point where sometimes they're almost nervous to do the operations, as you pointed out, not just from a monetary side, but also an understanding that the risks, you know, like the mitigation here of the risks involved are so high, they're weighing it up and thinking there's probably a 20 to 30% chance of a pull through here, yet the owner is basically saying do everything you can, which they want to, 
but they're also realizing, you know, like there's a high cha- high probability of death here and then an extremely high probability of abuse. Yeah. Uh, ongoing abuse, um, you know, like slandering and defamation online. Yeah. Which is incredible. Well, but- I mean, every vet can probably tell the story of them, you know, doing absolutely everything within their power to save an animal and yep. not working mm. because that's the reality of the situation. And then having to hand over a $15,000 bill yep. to someone and not giving them back their animal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's the reality probably every vet has to face. That's what happened with Ladybug was we got to the end of the of the process. It was uh, – I think we, we literally had spent $17,000 by that time, that first operation. And by the time we got her, we were told euthanasia is probably your best option right now. Yeah. Here she is two years later and she's happy and moving around. Mm-hmm. You know, complications of course – However, Narelle looked at this from a feasibility side and also an emotional side, which you often do. You're very good at unpacking those boxes. And she sat down and said, I think the reason, because we were angry about it at the time, you know, like I was, I was pretty bitter about it and I was in a bit of a hurt locker because of my connection to her and yeah, my yeah. love for her and so forth. But Narelle said when she, we got home and we sat with it for a couple of days, she said, look, I think they probably said this because a lot of people aren't the position that you and I are in where we can work this. And, you know, she said, you're an exceptional handler and you know how to do things. And even when you have to express the bladder and so forth, Mm -hmm. which we had to learn about, you know, like finding her bladder and then being able to express it because they, they feared that she'd never be able to urinate on her own. Mm -hmm. Turns out that she can now, but at the time we had to learn how to do all those sort of things. And they, they said, this is going to be an ongoing process. Like you will have to manually express her to get her to urinate and so forth. Now for some people that would be fucking distressing because they could hurt the dog, cause infections, all sorts of things that would happen. Now, when I look back on it with fresh eyes, which is often a decent place to go, Mm. you could look at it and say, there would be a lot of people out there who couldn't do that, wouldn't be able to, and wouldn't want to do it. And therefore, the dog would be in a lot of pain. There would be a lot of ongoing issues. There would be a lot of stacked medical bills because it would be back and forth trips to the veterinary hospital. In the beginning, Ladybug had to go back a few times. She developed uh, urinary tract infections and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there are things there and considerations that people must take on board. And there always is. And I think when you're contemplating the facts, you've got to, even though it's hard sometimes, you still got to contemplate all the facts. Mm. You've got to look at it from the balance perspective as such and, totally. and really consider everything. And when you're hurting, and most people know this, when you're driven by emotions, emotions are very powerful things. They really stir up and invoke a lot of different feelings and a different thoughts and outcomes. However, I had to eat my own humble pie with this because I've often, even with the people I work for, we now have a rule amongst ourselves in our in our circle that says, Never make a decision when you're very happy or you're very angry Mm -hmm. because they're the worst decisions to make. When you're happy, you'll give away things that you didn't want to. And when you're angry, you'll say things that you shouldn't have said. We now agree that even if we're feeling something of extreme happiness or extreme anger, the decision is always, I'll get back to you. Mm -hmm. And you go away and think about it when you've got time to do your breathing exercises, shoot it out amongst amongst the group, and then we make the decision. Mm -hmm. Because really what we're trying to do is make the best decisions. So I understand that when I see the flack that comes back to vets, you know, doctors get it themselves, but for some reason, vets get it more. Like they get an intense round of hatred and the accusations that they're in it for the money and that they're what they're charging is criminal. And yeah. I think one of the difficult things, and this is why people should have pet insurance, especially in Australia, if, you're, if you've totally. got small animals and so forth, especially 
French Bulldogs and exotic breeds, you should have pet insurance. There's no two ways about it. Pet insurance for us was a saving grace that we actually were able to claim money back on on the incident. If we hadn't, I mean, all of her medical procedures have been extensive. So, you know, I'm just glad that we made the wise choice to pay for it. Now, that's sacrifice. You've still got to come up with that money every month. Luckily, we're in a fortunate position to be able to do that. I know some people are struggling to be able to do that, and that's not a a slight on them. It's just a suggestion that if you can do it, you should do it. Yeah. Because that in those sort of situations, the vet's able to do everything they possibly can. And the relief from the actual owner is a, they know that they get every fighting chance they can. And the bill that they get at the end of it isn't so extensive as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I have pet insurance on all my dogs and I'm ahead. I'm yep. the I'm I'm beating the house. Yeah, we <laughs> but are. I, but I have lunatic dogs, so like maybe if you've just got a, a chilled out calm dog, you're maybe in a different risk category to me. But I have two fucking lunatics that injure themselves as readily as possible. So, well, the old adage, you know, going back when I was a kid and and having dogs, the the old adage was a dog's worth a hundred bucks. Yeah, and it doesn't go past that. If it's more than a hundred bucks, then you put the dog down. Yeah, that wasn't always the case. But these days it's swung completely differently. Like these days it's not, this is a dog that occupies the backyard and fends off burglars. This is now something that we deeply love. Now, you know, even when I talk about that, it it sounds like the dark ages of owning pets and it wasn't like that. You know, there were still people who love their dogs and would spend money on their dogs if it needed veterinary treatment. But dogs just weren't as accepted like they were in the family yeah. these days. And we've yeah. seen that change. You've, yeah. You would have seen that change in your lifetime. Yeah, of course. Mm. And I think one of the things, you know, if you have an issue with the dog, your health or, you know, like injury, whatever, having the, you know, in the decision-making process about what to do for that dog, having the financials not be part of that is a huge relief. And then mm. you can really focus on, is this the right thing to do for the dog? You know, like, especially with like, it's rare that dogs survive cancer treatments and stuff like that. So like, you know, like you really want to look at that through the lens of, is this the best thing to do for the dog? Is Mm. this quality of life, all that kind of stuff. And to not have to worry about the cost of the procedure. If you have that capacity, that's the best position you could possibly be in because then the, the dog really is getting the best decision for itself rather than that extra concern over can i afford this is it worth it yeah because that's a reality of situation people everyone's got finite resources right like Mm. and and if you say hey this is going to buy six months for the dog and but it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars that's you know you have to now you got to think about that and everybody falls in a different place for that but when they say hey this is going to buy six months of quality of life it's like okay do it of course right but and if you don't have to worry about the financial part of it so yeah now that we've talked about the pros for the vets Let's talk about one of the areas that certainly for me is a con. I'm going to talk about my own point. You can weigh in on this if you feel differently or the same. One of the areas where I feel that they really let the community down is when they start advising on behavioral issues, which they're not. That's not one of their strong suits. So some vets are. Some vets have done extensive study on behavior and they've expanded their knowledge. They've done training courses. They're trainers themselves. They've been out in the community and they have every right to weigh in on some of these arguments. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of vets haven't had time to do that. Like what they know about behavioral sciences in dogs, you could fill a thimble with. Yeah. And yet they give extensive advice to people, which I fundamentally think is wrong. Now that could be based on interpretation. 
there have been people that have come back and interpreted it poorly because they're angry and they're emotional and they're upset and their pets just probably died or close to or they've received a an enormous bill which they can't make heads to tail of, which is really fucked with their head. So in those sort of cases, sometimes it's an interpretation thing. But yet I've heard multitudes of vets before online, you know, I've seen them type it out and I've heard from their mouth to my ears saying things that are so controversially wrong, which I've challenged them on at the time. And I've said, that's not right. You shouldn't be saying that. That Mm -hmm. information is fundamentally incorrect and you should be held accountable for it. So I would never challenge a vet over anything to do with the biology of an animal. That's not my space to do so. I would never encroach on. And I have an insistence with my staff here when something goes wrong with a dog, we can summarize what we think it might be, but we never tell the client what it is because none of us are vets. Mm -hmm. So I forbid my staff to say to a client, we think it's this. What we do is we say there's something that um, wrong with the dog. We needed to take it to a vet. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's the advice that we act on. Now I would never cross the line of a vet to say that I just think it's that and we'll go with that. Yeah. You'd never offer a diagnosis. Correct. If it's something requiring vet meat treatment immediately off to the vet. And I feel that vets need to do that with trainers as well. They mm-hmm. need to cooperate with trainers better. It is better. It is better. Let me say veterinary folks out there, I I do support it. There are a lot more vets that are working closely and in conjunction with trainers, and it is better. You can't understand how much I appreciate you for doing that. But for the people who still are giving these bogus behavioral advice out based on your gut feelings or your thinking, sometimes you just need to leave that alone. Yeah. i got a few things to say on that. Yeah. I think that it's a sliding scale of advice that gets given. Yeah. So, you know, you're in for your health check mm. once a year, your average pet person. And because they don't understand the level of training that goes into being a vet, I think a lot of people take for granted how hard it is to be a vet because of the Terribly number hard. of species that you have to Absolutely. be across and the differences between them and that kind of stuff. They're but, literally geniuses in, in biology because there's so many animals that they have to attend to. Yeah. yeah. And so while they're giving you vaccinations or whatever, a lot of people will just ask fleeting behavioral questions. And I think that it's totally fair and reasonable that vets answer those then, right? Because they might ask, you know, like, I don't think that you're the average pet owner necessarily distinguishes, they would think that a vet actually is probably more qualified as a trainer than a dog trainer. Because they, they do. Because they look at it and go, oh, you went to uni for seven years and this dickhead was in the army for 12 years and then just got out and decided he was a dog trainer, right? So mm-hmm. like when you put the two of us together on paper, seven years of formal education around animals mm. versus some Jono that has a highly trained dog it's a clear distinction. The vet obviously knows more. So first of all, I don't think people realize that vets aren't really trained in behavioral stuff unless they're that type of vet. But if they're just their regular vet that they're going to for their health check, Mm. then they're not trained in it. But then the vet has this position of like, do I say, no, I I can't help you. Right. Yeah. Or do they just offer some small advice? Mm. Right. And I think that's what a lot of them do. Right. Instead of saying like, when someone asks a behavioral question and say, no, I can give you no advice on that. You need to call a trainer. Most people aren't. And the only reason they're asking that question in that moment is because they're like, oh, here's 30 seconds to fill awkward conversation space. I can do that by asking a behavioral question of my dog. And maybe I can get some behavioral tidbit for free while I'm here getting paying for other stuff. And so I think it's totally normal and reasonable that vets are filling that space with you know small behavioral advice. It's when it becomes an issue of, you know, I'm here because of this problem and people go to the vet because of 
whatever behavioral problem they're having with the dog with some sort of expectation that the vet can help them with that. Mm. And then I think also big part of the issues is that you view the world through the lens through which you're capable of causing change. And so when people go to the vet and to, you know, to get back to the original sort of question of us is where people go to the vet and they have a behavioral problem. There is some evidence in the past that desexing will alter behavior. At the minimum, it will alter behavior no matter what, right? Maybe detrimentally, but it will alter behavior. Well, in that situation, like if you listen to Sapolsky talking to Huberman when he's now doing a lot of research on testosterone, he talks about his findings suggesting that testosterone is simply an amplifier. That's right. So all it's doing is amplifying a behavioral set that's already there like if you remove the testes in a male and doesn't produce the testosterone that it was producing, then the amplification of that behavior will, in theory, should reduce, which I found absolutely fascinating. If you haven't heard that episode, folks, Human Labs. It's Robert the best Sop- podcast getting around. Yeah, Robert Sapolsky um, talking to Dr. Human and the, the two of them just mashing it out about his research and so forth, but also deep diving into his theories now on testosterone, which yeah. I found absolutely revolutionary. Yeah, and so what... He- to brutally summarize it, he says it doesn't change who you are. It just amplifies, amplifies. what mm. you are. Yes. And so I think that's kind of the issue is that no vet is knowingly giving bad advice. They're just not doing that. And I think that's one of the problems. Like that's what I really want to get ahead of is that no vet is knowingly giving bad advice. I think that they often give bad behavioral advice, mm. but it's because that's what they've been trained to do or because they have, you know, some basis in evidence that, you know, maybe anecdotal, whatever, but they think that this will affect it positively. And, you know, to get back to him saying that the vet even recommended they don't need obedience training Mm. because of being neutered, there has to have been some instance that makes that vet feel that way. If there is a vet out there who can provide us with theory on that. No, but it just would have been, they had a dog come in that was a disaster. They desexed it. And then later it wasn't a disaster Mm. and it might be correlation, not causation, but Mm. they've put them together because there has to be, no one would say anything so fucking stupid and outrageous if they didn't have some basis in evidence for it. Like there has to be, you know what I mean? There has to be a reason for saying that. Let's travel back in time again to the time that ADT was in full swing, Australian dog training, which was Melbourne based at the time. We saw thousands of clients coming through the door and that old adage that desexing your dogs will decrease the behavior. Now, the reason that I can speak so brazenly about it is because it's observable to us to see how the dog comes out after such or said operation. Now, there were times where, yes, the behaviors that the client was concerned about was reduced by the operation. There were times where it did nothing and there were times where the dog was just as bad, if not worse. There was never really a conclusion that supported that desexing your dog would make the behavior go away because we were on the forefront. We saw the dogs. We, you know, they were still turning up to the training center and the clients were saying, very disappointed. The vet suggested this was going to happen. It didn't. Or the vet suggested this happened. And yes, we're happy with what went on. There was never an absolute about it. You could never say there was a high percentage of these people that were coming back and saying, absolutely, I got what I wanted. They'd come back and say either nothing changed. This is the majority I'm talking, not the minority. Nothing changed or it's as bad or worse. Mm. So 
when it's observable, when you're actually seeing, now vets might say on the other hand, well, we've observed something different. We're neutering hundreds of thousands of dogs a year. Yeah. So we're seeing something different. They might do that. They might actually do that. The reports that they're getting, the worldwide statistics that they're seeing from, you know, when they're collaborating with other vets around the world, they might see something differently than I'm not seeing. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's studies exist out there and there is a, you know, an understanding that this will prevent unnecessary behaviours. There's a lot of information out there that will prevent cancers and issues later on life, infections in the testes and the ovaries and so forth. I'd well, that's the funny conversation I had with someone the other day. Mm. We'll get to that. But okay. I think depends on the, the length of time you're looking at the data as well, because you imagine someone goes into the vet and they go, I've got this aggressive dog. He's dog aggressive. Say it's the classic Amstaff right? Dog aggressive Amstaff. He's now 10 months old. He's really starting to show some forward, like I want to eat other dogs. They decide, yep, it's time to get him desexed as well. They say to the vet, this is one of the reasons that we want to do it because he's being aggressive. The vet will say, yep, okay, no worries. Because the vet thinks we should desex him anyway, because that's kind of their mantra is, uh, you know, population control and that kind of stuff. They cut his nuts off. He leaves the place drowsy. He encounters a dog in the waiting room, but he's drowsy as shit. So it doesn't blow up. He's home for a week. They don't really do much with him because he's recovering from his surgery. They bring him back to the vet a week later. The vet says, how's it going? And say, actually, the re- aggression's reduced mm-hmm. because he, that, you know, because they go to get the stitches out. They haven't really have any instances for the dog to display that sort of aggression. Mm. And the dog maybe has dialed it back in the interim because he's the stimuli hasn't been present. Yeah. The stimuli hasn't been present or mm. because, you know, he's now he's dealing with the recovery of an operation. Yeah. He's got and, uh, a sore sack where there used to be two nuts. Yeah. And yeah. also he's dealing with a, a hormonal imbalance mm-hmm. as well. So he's figuring out who he is again. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, the 10 days later, seven to 10 days later when they go back and say, yep, like, yeah, it's all gone. He's no longer, he's no longer aggressive. And the vet goes, okay, no, got it. Like, and in my mind, I file that under reduction in aggressive behaviors due to, Uterine. Mm. And I think that's probably sort of commonplace. I think that that's probably something that reasonably happens. And then there isn't that follow up with six months later when mm. it's like nothing ever happened. I've never heard of a case of where it really has long term lasting effects for the positive desexing because of a behavioral problem. I don't see it. There's lots of reasons why you can and should neuter a dog. I think that if the dog is displaying aggression, like that's the sexing is not going to change that. There's millions of aggressive dogs in welfare and shelters all around the world that are there because they've still got problems with, yeah. you know, like we're, when we're talking about a lot of the blockhead dogs, but they're all desexed, yeah. you know, they're in shelters and pounds around the world. And I mean, around the world yeah. where they're still untreatable aggression or well, not untreatable, but their treatment methodology up to date has not ceased or stopped the aggression levels. They're there because of that. Yeah. I've had quite a few people, you know, dogs that are otherwise observably normal social dogs get kind of feisty with Remy. Mm. And for two reasons, he's a lot of dog. He brings a, he carries an energy that most dogs are not used to seeing. He's quite boisterous, but just his presence, Mm. you know, he like most Mallies, right? Like he just, most dogs aren't seeing a dog of that level of intensity. He's got intensity. Yeah. But also because he has his nuts on that a lot of pet dogs in my area don't see and they react weirdly to it. And I have, it gives off a different odor. Yeah. But Mm. I, I have people like, complain that their dog's aggressive to my dog like it's my problem and i'm like this like you're the one that fucking cut your dog's nuts off right you you can marinate in that problem that's not a pat and remy problem how how dare you how dare you go against victim shaming (laughs) (laughs) to speak to what we're talking about just a second ago 
I had someone ask me the other day why he wasn't a sex because it was just someone in the park, right? We we're walking around in the morning and there was this shepherd that was kind of sketchy and avoiding him. And he was intent on like, no, we're going to be friends. And Remy's actually very good at it. He's a social dog. Like he's not over the top, like you're beyond the energy that he has, but he, he manages other dogs. And if he, for whatever reason he wants to encounter with a dog, he will not force it upon them, but he will alter his behavior to try and make himself more inviting, which is what he was doing to this dog. And me and the owner were there just kind of chatting. And she asked why he, she said, oh, have you bred him? Because he like, you know, observed his giant balls flapping around. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh no, I don't breed dogs. And I don't. So no. And she was really perplexed and was like, how come he's not dissexed? And I was, I probably was a bit of a dick. And I, I said, well, why would I? Like, tell me why I should, because it, we're but talking that's about not being a dick. I think that's a reasonable question. To ask. Yeah. Why, but, why should I? But I think in society that the question is just why, like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Because that mm. is that's yeah, the certainly in Australia, that's cer- the narrative. certainly mm. here in Sydney, yep. that is, you are not the norm. You are an outlier when your dog is intact. Yeah. Right. And especially if you're just going out and interacting with normal dogs, like most people who you have their dogs intact, it, they are breeding dogs and then they're, they're, they're not in the city where I am, right? It is very uncommon to see an intact dog where mm. I am. And so I said, like, why would I? What's the benefits? Because we're chatting a bit and she's like, well, there's certain cancers that they can't get. And I was like, no shit, you can't get cancer in an organ you don't have. Mm. Like, <laughs> like, like, I just think that's one of the most outrageous, ridiculous things that you could say. Well, for the record, every male dog that I've owned, and I've owned quite a few, None of them have developed a prostrate or a or a testicular issue, and they've all died with their balls. Yeah, but like, but I just manage them well. A hundred percent of dogs with no balls won't get cancer. That's with right. Balls. Yeah. Like it's like that's a, yeah. that's a statistic we can take to the fucking bank. Yeah. Right? Now, like, now I, we we both declare we're not vets, and we're not trying to give out veterinary advice. No, and this is not a vet bashing session. We both acknowledge that. The majority of vets that we know of and that we've had encounters with are geniuses and we fully support them and we think they're amazing people. Yeah. We deal with so many incredible vets here at work and I totally respect them. I love them. I let them do their job and I the only thing I don't interlude with them apart from asking questions. Yeah. You know, all I do is ask questions and then they give me adequate veterinary advice back. I don't sit in their trailer and say, oh, you should be doing this. All I'm saying is that I'm not being a shrill. I'm just saying that I do acknowledge the hard work vets are doing, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we can't question some of the things they do. Yeah, and you're entitled to. Like I said, this wasn't a vet I was talking to. It's just you know, random, Sam random, random park goer. Yeah, and but it was an interesting conversation because then we kind of got into the weeds on it. She then picked up like, oh, okay, you're some kind of dog professional, right? Like, tell me more about this. And I said, I just don't. There's really no need to. For starters, maybe he would be bred by his original breeder, who knows, right? That's none of my business. I don't really, I'm not into it, but there isn't any pros that outweigh the cons for me. And as I said, the picture that a lot of the average pet dog owner has is that your male dog is going to be aggressive and unmanageable. I'm like, look at him. He's a sweetheart. He's one of the nicest dogs you'll ever see. The fact that he carries his balls around, that's not just going to make him aggressive. The other is that he's just going to be the park rapist and run around raping everyone. And I'm like, well, given the right circumstances with Remy, that probably would be the case. But I have, I can train him. Like, I'm like, hey, don't, don't do that. Knock mm-hmm. it off, right? Like, if he gets too much for someone, or you know, he starts showing too much interest in dog, and be like, hey, come back, knock it off. Don't do that, right? That's training. Yeah, you don't need to be a world class trainer to train a dog just to like, hey, don't do that one behavior. 
But if you limit yourself from saying no to a dog or using Oh, you went there. You yeah, went there. But that's that's part of the issue, <laughs> Absolutely right? Absolutely. Agree. Totally that's, agree. That's a big part of it is yeah. like no amount of and, – and especially if you uh, do wait, encounter – Hang on. Hate. Are you talking about suppression training? <laughs> Liam, <laughs> we're nearly there. But like, you know, especially if you do encounter an, an intact female mm. that's in heat or, you know, close to or whatever – no amount of throwing cookies around is going to help that, right? No. And and so that's where it's that's where that level of training there, there's an endpoint, right? Mm. When that's one of them, in that moment you're not going to alter that dog's perspective on what he wants to do without some use of pressure, especially when it's hardwired into their genetic coding. Yeah, mm. and, and and I think has that's been for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, I did a whole YouTube video on this. It is the point where withholding or you can starve a dog out. It's not going to work. With mm. some dogs, and especially the good ones, they'll die before they- They'll starve themselves out. Yeah. Yeah. We see, we've see. we seen in the kennels where we've had a dog come into season and several of the male dogs will refuse to eat and they'll even, they'll throw up bile yeah. because their eating is the last thing yeah. on their mind. Yeah. That's biologically yeah. hardwired and that's how genes get passed on. I was, you know, also explain that to people many times is that if me and you are, if we're dogs and we're, we can smell- a bitch in heat and we're in pursuit and she's wherever and we're pursuing for days on end to find her. If you stop to eat and I don't, you'll you'll win. Yeah. Your Mm. genes don't get passed on and mine do. Right. Simple as that. Yeah. And so the idea that I'm going to keep my dog hungry and offer him food in the presence of that, that's just like, if you've got a good dog, that is not going to work because it's only going to last two weeks. He he'll live for two weeks without eating. And and then at the end of it, he'll recover himself. Mm. But we artificially create that because we're like, Oh, I need to proof off of this. And I get the urine of a bitch in heat that I can store in the fridge and use every day for six months. But mother nature tells him you will get through this. You don't need to eat. You need to pursue that smell and you can eat at the end of it. Mm. But we artificially create a, a world where he can't do that and yep. he'll starve. He will, like a, some dogs will starve themselves to death before mm. they do that. And it's not like it's can't, untrainable. It's just like, hey, knock it off. Like, like come over here, mm. play the game with me, right? Anyway, back to the conversation. It was, yeah, we spoke for quite a while and I was like, you know, I, I don't see any reason to dissect him. And I said, my Springer here, she is, right? Because there was complications with her not. And and she was four years old when we did it or a bit, a bit older. And it was because she kept having false pregnancies. And it got to the point where I was sort of thinking, yeah, it definitely wasn't going to breed her because she's got a skin allergy problem. And I got to the point where I was thinking, this is probably the risks are now outweighing the reward. And she's four years old. She's fully grown. She's developed her personalities in check. Uh, so I made that decision. It's not like I'm anti-dissexing. Although, in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have done it with her, to be honest, now that I know, like having seen what happened to her and her personality change and that kind of stuff. And what's really observable, and you, you don't necessarily notice it yourself over time, but when I look at photos of how much her body has changed, like Valerie's body, she's really a different shape mm. post being dissexed because her hormones are totally different, mm. right? She holds, she carries weight. Well, she doesn't in have places. some of those hormones anymore. That's right. Mm. Right. So like, I just think that's one of those things that society has just been kind of programmed to think that's what you do. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the norm. And I think for the most part, like it's, it's no big deal. It's only when like, that's probably fine. I'm not going to, Convincing people not to dissect their dog is not a hill I'm prepared to die on, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm like, that's one of the smallest problems. Personal choice. Yeah, that's one of the smallest problems that we have getting around. It's mm. really no big deal. But I think defending someone for their choice not to is a hill that I'll die on, yeah. right? And it's up to you mm. whether you want to cut out a dog's fucking organs or not, right? And I think that's one of the things. Like people look at Valerie with her missing tail and some people get really mad at me because they think that I doctored to for looks. I'm like, hey- 
She was badly injured tail. There was no other option. I begged the vet not to cut it off. And right in front of me, my vet got a set of pliers and snapped the end of it off to show me that it's dead. She can't feel it. It will kill her if we don't. Yeah, it goes gangrenous. People don't realize how bad happy tail can be in some of these dogs because, you know, dogs like Springer's, they're bred to not feel the- In drive, uh, she doesn't care. Yeah, in drive, they just don't feel the pain that other dogs would feel and stop doing things. They'll just push through it. Yeah. We've had it in the kennels before. We've had dogs that will just whack their tails. Dogs like Dobermans and so forth with those long, wispy tails. Great Danes are another one. They'll just keep smacking it against the edge of yep. the brick or the. it doesn't matter what surface is. They just keep repetitively smacking against it. They'll wear a callus. The callus will burst open and blood will jet all over the place. Yeah. Like it looks like a crime scene when yeah, you go yeah. in there. Oh, mate, my house, when her tail was bad. Yeah. When I came home when she first did it, it mm. was fucking looked like a murder scene in my house. There was blood all over the walls because, you know, her tail never stops, right? CSI so Pat Stewart's home. Oh, dude, I, mm. I honestly was like, what the fuck has happened here? Yeah, it's terrible. We've gone into – the girls have been, especially young staff who have never seen it before, have been very distressed over it yeah. because – it's a problem, like it's a problem and we've got to address it. But we've had those sort of situations before and the owners will go, oh, yeah, yeah, he does that from time to time. And and there have been owners who have had to take an inch of the tail off and then yeah. another inch of the tail off. And finally, it has to be docked right back until it's a, like a nub. Well, that's what happened with Val. We yeah. did it in two, it happens. In it two happens. sections. They did like a field dock where they cut it to the bone and yep. then that didn't work. And so we had to do the whole thing. So I wish I'd just done the whole thing. But as I say... People look at that and that's a conversation point, right? People are like, how come your dog doesn't have a tail? What, like, and it's accusatorily, like, did you cut that off for aesthetic reasons? Mm. And But when it's like, how come your dog doesn't have any balls? Because they're more important than his fucking tail, yep. right? Like, they're going to affect him mentally and physically mm-hmm. more than his tail. But that's just not open for discussion. And that's just how like we are as a society and I'm okay with it. Like I, I don't think it's a big deal. It's not something I want to you know, make a big deal about, but the idea that desexing a dog because it's going to make them easier to live with. I just don't see that. I, I've never observed that. And I've trained and dealt with a lot of dogs. Mm, so I've, I've never observed desexing a dog, making it easier to live with. Like In I fact, said, the, the pounds and, and shoulders are littered with them. If you, if you want anecdotal evidence, just go around and visit the shelters and, yeah. and look between the male dog's legs. There's no balls there. And yet their behavior is still reprehensible. Yeah. And in fact, I often observe the opposite of maturity type issues in dogs that are dissexed young. Mm. And I think that's a bigger, more important conversation to have as rather than not dissexing dogs at all. I think a bigger issue that I see is dogs that are dissexed as very young Mm. dogs, sort of four to six months old and never their bone density never comes in. They're weird, lanky kind of dogs and it all goes wrong. So like Remy has a brother here in Sydney that was born with an umbilical hernia. Right. Mm. And so he had to be dissexed at six weeks. Right. Because he's, his guts were wrapped around his nuts, poor little fucker. Yeah. He's enormous. Like he's fucking twice the size of Remy. Like mm-hmm. it fucked with his body. And so like his hormones are all wrong. It's all all over the place. Karen Becker, I know we've talked about this on other episodes, but Karen Becker did an early video which sort of really sprung her into the limelight because she kind of whistle blew on the whole endocrinology system yeah. of, of dog. She sort of said, desexing early, this is what you can expect. And as a vet who's done this and been – prolific in desexing animals. I can't do it anymore because this is my truth. And it's very popular with a lot of pet owners who are outraged by it and very unpopular with the scientific side of it because they kind of feel that they feel there's inaccuracies around it. But 
is there? Mm. Is there like when you know. when you remove a natural part of the body, we say don't tail dock and don't remove dew claws and don't do this and don't do that, but then we remove sexual organs that you're born with for a reason and you're producing hormones around them. Like I don't know the answer. I'm not a vet. I've never extensively studied physiology. I yeah. can't turn around to the community listening to this and say, I know the answers to this. I don't. Joe Rosie would probably be a good person to yeah. have a discussion around that because she does read all those type of papers and she is very involved in the scientific side of it. But me, I can't say definitely, but that changed my perspective. Yeah, I watched that same video. It's interesting. Mm. It is interesting. But I think, you know, from my point of view, I can't stress enough that I have a great working relationship with my vets. I have a lot of respect mm. for them. And Likewise. I've ne- actually really never had any of the issues that, our listener is asking questions about, I've never observed that, but I hear about it. And I think that it's in the public perception. I think that's more of the issue is like, I observe it in the public eye rather than in the vet's eyes because, you know, at my vet, and it's not like it's the one guy I see every time he owns it and he doesn't even work there really anymore. It's multiple people. There's different vets all the time, right? Like it's whoever's there on the day, but no one has ever given me heat over my dog, not being to sex. Like it's not, it's not, it's, they don't push it. It's not Mm -hmm. a thing. I think that the population control, I think that, you know, that's what people think that it's about. Mm. And for the large part, it probably is. I think that a lot of, you know, the average pet dog owner wouldn't be responsible enough to, you know, a lot of people can't even fucking walk their dog down the street. Uh, agree, totally agree. So I think that it's in often, often many cases, it's the right thing to do. Mm. But if it's in order to solve a behavioral problem, it's not. And in fact, now that I think of it, I actually did get a Mally D-Sex a long time ago that was a very aggressive dog. And the vet actually said to me, you know, this isn't going to stop this dog being aggressive. Right. And I was like, I'm counting on it. <laughs> like I just, I just made need to make sure that he's not bred. Mm. So like I, and so I've actually had positive experiences with, it was a different vet in a different place, but the vet was like, you know, this is not going to stop this dog being aggressive. And I was like, thank you to that vet who yeah. was open about that honest conversation. Yeah. There's a lot of times where, people get into the problem which the Milgram experiment highlighted, whereas if you're wearing a coat of authority, people won't ask you questions anymore. They'll just accept and deem the, whatever you say is fact. Mm. Happens when you've got a microphone as well and a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what I do encourage people to do in those sort of situations is don't sit there wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Like, ask questions. Like yeah. if, you, well, if you feel that there's inaccuracies around that and that's quite controversial, ask why. It's not that you're being disrespectful or rude to them. Just say, look, I'm curious as to where I could find further study on that. Could you point me in the right direction? There have been times where authoritarian figures have said things to me and I've asked questions around it rather than just following the order. I've Instead, I'm not being disrespectful. I'm just saying, could you provide me evidence on, on this? Like, I want further knowledge about this rather than just you, the person in the uniform giving me a direction. Why are you telling me this? Like, I need to know why. Like, I believe that there's more to this and I would like you to point me in the right direction of that rather than just being complicit to something that somebody is suggesting to you. Because often sometimes when you really open up that can, you'll find that maybe there were some inaccuracies around that. Maybe this is the opinion of the person giving the directive. In some instances, I've had that with vets before where I've said, let's sit down and open this up. Because I really, I'm not convinced that's the right answer, especially training advice where I have had comfortable sit downs with vets before. And I've had many, we've had many debates. My own vet, love her, absolutely adore her. I think she's brilliant and marvelous. 
if she says something that I don't agree with, I will interject. I'll sit there and say, and some people say, yeah, but that's you, Glenn. You're comfortable in your skin to do that sort of thing. And I get that. Some people, the thought of confrontation with their vet and the thought of having to leave their vet is quite unbearable to them. I get that. I understand that. But sometimes, personally, I have done that in those decisions before where I've thought, I'm not comfortable with this vet anymore. Like the advice they're giving me is not suitable for what I think. And it's not that I completely and vehemently disagree with everything they're doing. It's just when I feel that they are giving bad advice and they just won't yield to it. You know, like even when, when I can provide evidence to them and say, well, we talked about this last time I was here. I've done some research on it or it's been provided to me by a third party. I'd like your take on it. And they primarily screwed their face up and given me a bit of a fuck you sort of look. Mm. That defiance primarily says to me, I think we need to end the relationship here. It's not healthy anymore because now I don't really respect you for not at least meeting me halfway and being willing to discuss the situation. Yeah. That happens in human medical it, professionals it does. as well. You yeah. Know, I've walked out on doctors and yes, stuff like that. Likewise. Like it's like, hey, I don't feel like you're understanding what I'm saying here. You know, like that that happens all the time. Yeah. Oh, man, you just I come to the it. end of the road sometimes and that's okay. It's okay to move on. Dog trainers do it. Totally. You, uh, you and I have opened this up on many discussions where not everybody has agreed with you. Not everybody has agreed with me. You know, not everybody has agreed with some of the big wigs around the, in the industry and that's going to happen. And sometimes they're right. You know, we didn't give them the best advice. We weren't right for them at the time. It's not that we intended to be like that. It's just that whatever message that we were trying to provide for them wasn't accurate for their dog or for their style, for their system. And sometimes you have to make a choice to move on to somebody who you feel that that is going to push you forward or get you to the destination that you need to be at. And I think that's really common, like whether you're talking about vets or human medical professionals, whatever, mm. I think that they're experts and often they have a very well-trodden path mm. to achieving success in what they want to do. And for the majority of their patients, that's fine. But when you're an outlier to that, like a personal example, back when my back was really, really bad and I was having a really bad run of it, I had to go see a pain specialist. And I wanted a particular type of medication. He was like, I will not prescribe that to you unless you try this one first, because for me, that's kind of an end game medication. And I want you to have these two before and see how they go before that. And I said to him, like, I'm aware of the side effects of those and I'm not prepared to take that risk. He actually fired me. Yeah. He was like, I'm not going to prescribe that to you. And we had a pretty amicable conversation about it, but it was like, it was Lyrica that he wanted me to take. And I was like, man, I'll get fat. Like, that's the guaranteed outcome of that. It will stop the pain that I'm feeling, but I'll put on weight. And then that's a bigger problem for me mm. than the actual pain that I'm feeling. So I'm not prepared to do that. Like, that's the cost benefit analysis when I do it. And he's like, yeah, cool. Well, I'm not going to the next step with you. I was like, that's fine. I'll find someone else that will, right? Yep. And so I think that's how it goes with a lot of this kind of medical professional stuff is people are like, no, I'm, a, I'm an expert. And, and, it, and it happens with us as well. Like people come to me and they say, hey, I want to you know, train my dog to do X, Y, Z. I'm like, cool, we have to put the markers in place. I'm not even going to talk about what you want to train until we have the mm. markers in place. Mm. Some people are like, no, I want to just start that. And I'm like, well, then we're not the right fit. Like yep. that's totally fine. I'll give you the number of someone who will do it because it will work. Yep. It's just not how I want to do yep. it, right? And so I think like being professional enough and having that adult conversation and realizing it's not, that's why there are specialists. That's why there are multiple of things. We don't have one of everything. Mm. If we all did things the same, what a fucking boring place that would be, right? <laughs> and what would be the point? Yeah, imagine a world without controversy. <sighs> Before we leave, there was just a, around this subject of desexing. I saw an interesting meme the other day, which I was going to put out on Instagram, and I still might. It's like a Amstaff or a pit bull just staring longingly out of a window, and it said, 
you think you know somebody and then they cut your balls off. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the running joke, right? Yeah. And, but I think it definitely I'm pro dissexing for most people's pet dogs. I think that like when you weigh up the relative risk of animal care, animal welfare, for that average Jono and his dog, it probably is the right decision. What about consent? Yeah, well, there's all those issues, right? <laughs> but I think it, for the most part, it probably is the right decision for the average person yeah. and the average dog. Even Karen Becker says that in that video. She yeah. stipulates that point that if you're an irresponsible person that can't keep your dog under lock and key or keep your dog under effective control and manage your dog somehow, this is the right decision for you and you yeah. should go and desex your dog. Uh, Even after she tells everybody the extensive lists of – possible damage that you could be doing to the endocrinology issue. She stipulates that at the point and says, finally, my thoughts are if you can't if you can't manage your dog well, then go and desex your dog. Yeah, and I think that's one of the problems that we have sort of in the social media world is or the the three second attention span that everybody has these days mm. is really taking in all the information in its entirety and doing the cost benefit analysis from multiple directions. So, you know, like we said, like for my dog it doesn't stack up to this axiom. It just doesn't mm. because the pros don't outweigh the cons, but that's not the case for everybody else. I think that where it becomes an issue, and that's the only thing that I feel like we have some you know level of expertise to talk about, is that I have not observed a, a dog with a behavioral issue have that behavioral issue fixed from being dissexed. Mm-hmm. That's not been my observation. I've never observed that. And in fact, I've observed the opposite. I've seen dogs that were fine develop issues after being desexed. And I've also seen plenty of dogs that have aggression issues and are desexed and it not change anything. Mm-hmm. It, when you consider it in the long term, like when you give the dog time to recover from the surgery and all that kind of stuff and refit back into its life, tends not really to change anything. And I think maybe one of the reasons that that is so ingrained is like, you know, for the most part, the old like dominance theory has been you know, sort of thrown out in, in, in regards to training. And I agree with that. I mm. think that the idea, we totally understand that dominance is a real thing. and But it's relative to the moment. Yeah, and mm. it's effectiveness in training and the, the old school pack leader fucking bullshit, right? Mm. Like for the most part, we're over that. Yeah. But I think that the idea of desexing male dogs is a bit of a, a hangover from that. Mm. Do you think that's possible? Because it's like he wants to be the alpha and if you take away his testosterone, he won't want to do that. Like that's kind of the underlying mindset of it. Referring back to Sapolsky's theories on testosterone, I think that we've had a limitation on what we knew about testosterone. I feel that now that this has sort of come into the highlight and it does talk about the amplification of behaviours, then if you look at it from a veterinary perspective and saying, well, that's what we're doing. We're reducing the possibility of amplification of aggression and so forth. But then that suggests that that doesn't make the behavior go away. It might reduce the likeliness of the behavior coming up, but then there's still the underlying effect that the behavior is still there. Yeah. And the problem also is let's take away the hormonal side of it. The problem that we often see is some of these behaviors are actually behaviorally reinforced. Yes. So that's the issue that we face as the training community is the dogs had a long running or an understanding that this behavior makes me feel good. Mm. All of the attributes of displaying this behavior are beneficial to me. So therefore I'm going to continue to do the behaviors. Whereas what the vet will suggest is if we remove the flow of testosterone, Mm. then hopefully this should go away. But I think the seeded word there is hopeful. Mm. It doesn't mean definite. It just means there is a possibility that it may. 
And, you know, you talked about observation before. We're very keen on observation, especially being in the behavioural field. The problem that I've seen, and, and like I said, when ADT was in full swing, there were thousands of people coming through our doors, like literally thousands of. We had, you know, eight centres, so there's a lot of clientele going through. Now, when you do see desexing in place, and like I said, sometimes we saw reduction, most times we saw no change at all, and sometimes we saw highlighted aggression mm. or a highlighting of the behaviour that the owner was concerned about. You know, where they'd come back six weeks later after the dog had healed and said, nothing's changed. Look, some people did come back and saying, oh, yeah, the dog is more social now. Maybe for that dog, the amplification of the behaviour was able to be mm. triggered by the operation, the reduction of the flow of testosterone, et cetera, et cetera. But again, not being an endocrinologist, or a physiologist in veterinary care, I can't confirm that 100%. I can just say what I see with my own eyes. You know, having a relationship, a long-term relationship with that person, visibly viewing the behaviour of their dog over a period of time, I can confirm with them, yes, there is no reduction in the behaviour, or yes, I can see that the dog is now more sociable with other male dogs in the presence. But I can't say for sure that I saw a lot of that, definitely can't say I saw a lot of that. What I would say is that I still saw the dog displaying the same behaviours post-surgery that it was doing before. And in some cases, I had to confirm with the owners that the dog is actually worse. Mm. Now, I don't know if that was just a normal trajectory that the dog was on. Yeah, exactly. So the baseline behaviour is just accelerated and it's moving in the righteous path that it was headed in anyway. That's a very strong possibility. However, Still, to the eye, you can still see the trajectory of the behavior is going up. It it didn't flatline or it didn't decrease. Aggression in any form is a really difficult thing to get scientific, solid data on Mm. because every instance of the aggression will cause a branch plan as to what happens from there. So imagine a world where you could get two dogs that are both a year old, are brothers, and both have the same tendency for aggression – Imagine you could do that. First of all, that's almost impossible. You desex one and then you want to observe, do we see an increase or a reduction in aggression compared to the baseline of his brother? Mm. But every instance where they display aggression is more behavior than it is. It's controllable operantly. Mm. And so every instance where the dog displays that aggression, the outcome that it achieves operantly will affect the next display of aggression. So that's one of the things, like I remember when we spoke to Norell about it, like they were talking about of food and types of different foods and aggressions. And I was like, yeah, but the same issue kind of comes up in like, what did they do when the dog displayed that aggression? Because I can make a dog aggressive as fuck. Mm. And I can also reduce aggression very quickly by the way that I react to the display of the behavior. You know, we do it. And like as a decoy, we do that. A dog, you know, I, he's guarding his toy and I go in like I want to steal his toy. And when he just shows me the slightest little bit of, of fuck you. like You run just, and reward the behavior. Oh, I fall over and I give this big show. And then that is absolutely going to reinforce a dog and make him more Which likely it does. to it's, do it. It's exactly the pathway that yeah. you bring. Or, and adversely, if I get the handler just to hold the leash and I walk straight over and don't acknowledge its aggressive efforts to guard its item and just take it straight from it, the dog will alter its behavior. Like mm. that because he's like, well, that didn't work. So that's my big concern with all of these sorts of things is that there's really, I can't see any real way to measure that beyond, no, at all really, because every instance of aggression, the way it is dealt with will affect the next instance of aggression. Mm. There's really no way to develop a reasonable comparison as to having done it versus not having done it. I can't picture any way to do that. 
It's another big can of worms for another conversation, I think. Yeah, another mm. time. Yep. To reiterate, definitely not bashing vets. Definitely not. After many years of what I feel is a successful and symbiotic relationship with vets, like we just can't do our job successfully totally. without them. They are miraculous people who have got extensive study. And like I said, some of the, the vets that I've had a relationship over the years, I have nothing but the highest level of respect for them. Like every organisation, there's going to be good vets and bad vets, good dog trainers and bad dog trainers, good human beings and bad human beings. But a good vet is absolutely worth the drive for. Totally. I know vets that, that we've had at our training centre. Murray Clark, who was our old vet down there, people would drive for hours to come and see him. He was just a brilliant vet. With, yeah. And so articulated in his expression and explanation of everything, his care and welfare for animals back then. Like he was not only a small animal vet, but also dealt with you know, the large bovines and so forth. So he had an extensive knowledge and he was really a class act vet. Yeah. And I really appreciate, like he'd let me come in and scrub up and watch operations and take pictures and so forth so I could present them to students and everything like that. He was a really good guy and he was very passionate in his care and welfare of animals and I miss him as a vet. Yeah. And fortunately, we've got Dr. Jane Rickards down here. She's a great vet as well. She's a bit out there sometimes with her advice. It's funny, but she's a really very good vet. Very good. good vet. I think, and I know we've discussed this on the show before, I think that as a trainer, you really should go out of your way to try and develop a good working relationship with your personal vet and local vet in your area. Yeah. To the point where they have someone, when they do get that question- They've got to, a referral. Yeah, they've got, oh, no, I've got a guy for that. Call this guy. And and I know and trust him. I've seen his work. But, you know, like that's, I think, worth its weight. Like whatever time you invest into that- for your clients, it's going to be great, mm. but business-wise, it's also a very worthwhile investment in time and energy. But also, don't be afraid to have a respectful conversation if you disagree with the advice that your vet is giving you. You can ask the question. You don't have to say, I vehemently disagree with your scientific or professional opinion when you have no basis to conclude it on. What you can say is, I've heard something different to that. Would you mind if we have a conversation around it? Now, they might not have time then. But if you could say, like I've said to my vet before, can we speak after hours? I'm happy to pay if if I need to, but I just need 10 to 15 minutes to ask this question because I've heard something different. And I've been in a very fortunate positions where the vets have said, yep, absolutely, we'll talk about it. They've either changed my mind or they haven't. And that's what I appreciate is that they do take the time to sit down and say, let's talk about it at length so we can close the book on this or at least try and resolve it as best as we can and get as close to it as we possibly can. Mm. Yep. All right. That's it. That's it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, you heard the big rant at the start about stuff we're doing for Patreon and how that funds all the content. Patreon funds this show you're listening to. So the equipment that we're using, the hosting, everything is paid for by our Patreon supporters. Mm. So if you are one of those, we appreciate and thank you so very, very much. And, and so should the people who get the show for free. That's you right. I was pre- gonna, yes. Yeah. yeah so, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, <laughs> sir. Sorry to- If you're not one of those, thank one of them for us yeah. because they are the ones that are uh, paying for and producing all of this. Yep. Patreon pays for the YouTube content that I put out to try and educate people and to try and bring harmony into the dog space. Mm-hmm. And then there's stuff behind the paywall in Patreon that is like special for those people. Yep. Inside of there, there is more than two years of back catalog of information. Mm. There's a huge amount of educational content, educational as well as entertaining 
There's lots of stuff in there. There's an episode where we got drunk one day and did a podcast and then realized we shouldn't even, we were like, no, we can't put that out. We'll put it in Patreon. <laughs> that was with Forrest and Josh, wasn't yeah. it? There's an old yeah. one, yeah. Yeah. So jump into there if you feel like it. That would be much appreciated. And if you like the content and you don't have the money, thank one of the people who do because mm. they're, they're making this machine turnover. Absolutely. The other way you could support the show is fucking merch. Absolutely. Get a t-shirt. Go out and strut that stuff. Yeah. Casey told me the other day he's going to be in a documentary about tigers wearing a canine paradigm t-shirt. Good on you, Casey. What a guy. What a legend. What a tiger king of Australia. (laughs) Tiger king of Australia. Maybe that's the next show I could make. Tiger king Australia. Tiger king of Australia. Oh, he'd love that. I think he'd love that title. Yeah. Tiger king 2 is out now on Netflix. I've heard that. Mm. Yep, yep. I don't know that I have the time for that. That'd probably be terrible. Yeah, the sequels are never as good. Yeah. What am I up to? If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is jump into the Facebook group. That's Mm -hmm. where you can group source information. There's plenty of discussion about the show going on in there. Remember to be respectful, be polite. One thing I'll mention is no blind posts. I know we say that a lot, but your posts won't get approved if you just share something. Mm. So you got to say like why you think it's relevant. Otherwise, it just becomes a self-promotion pit. You can promote your own stuff if you think it's relevant. It's got to have it relevant to say the audience that is in this group is the audience of this show and this is why I think it's relevant, mm. right? That's fine. That's what we want. But just no blind post because that's just become spam. And just no shameless plugging of your own merch and stuff in there as well. Like yeah. we get a couple of people who just think, oh, well, this is a good platform for me to come and sell my shit. Don't do that without speaking to us first. Yeah. Have, show some respect like we would do on your channel. That's it. Yeah. And if you want to get in contact with us directly, shoot us an email. We are info at the Goodbye.